Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and here we go now with BC's new premier, David Eby. He was sworn in on Friday. You heard that live on Friday's show. Promised to hit the ground running, in his words, and he appears to be backing that up here with some major announcements coming right out of the gate. Later this morning, major housing announcement. David Eby promising more rental housing. He wants municipalities to approve more housing starts. We'll have that for you on the show today. Yesterday was public safety, rare Sunday news conference. EB unveiling what he called a safer communities action plan to deal with violent repeat offenders and the crime on the downtown east side. Have a listen to what he had to say here yesterday. David EB speaking yesterday. These teams are made up of police dedicated prosecutors, probation officers. Their mission is to prevent violent crime before it happens. And when it does happen, to make sure that violent offenders wait for trial in custody and not in our community, putting people at risk. Premier David Eby yesterday promising action and response teams on violent repeat offenders. Let's discuss it all now with my guest, Kevin Falcon, leader of the BC Liberal Party. Very pleased to welcome him back. Kevin, thank you for coming on today. Thanks very much for having me, Mike. Okay, you've talked a lot about what you've called this sort of catch-and-release justice system, the revolving door. We've heard these incredible stories of people who have racked up literally hundreds of police files, rinse and repeat, keep releasing them back into the public. you got a brand-new premier here now who says he's tackling this head-on. What do you think about what he had to say? Mike, I'll be honest with you. I almost feel angry. Uh, And the reason is this is such a cynical and shameless approach that he's taken. He has been the attorney general for almost five and a half years under this NDP government since day one. And for five and a half years, his specific policies resulted in the explosion of crime and social chaos and disorder that we've seen through every community in this province. He did nothing for months and months, even though we've been begging and pleading, not just ourselves, but mayors and communities have been asking, please do something about this catch and release. Only the day before he has to be held accountable in the legislature does he miraculously come out and say, oh, now I'm going to do all these things to fix it. Well, just call me a skeptic, frankly. Well, he was asked about the timing of this yesterday, and he outlined a series of steps that he said he had taken previously, including working with big city mayors in the province to get their input, and then ordering a, a, re, a quick review of the system that brought forward recommendations. So he said he hasn't been doing nothing. He's been working on this behind the or he's been working on this for months, he said. Well, for four months, he was running for leader of the party in that whole tainted leadership process. Not once did he mention anything about crime. Nothing. Um, you'll recall that the assistant deputy minister from his old ministry and the attorney general wrote a letter, in fact, three days before the by-election in Surrey, I might add, 
an extraordinary letter that came out saying the system is not broken. Uh, you know, but public confidence oh. is being undermined because people are out there asking uninformed, quote, or inaccurate, uh, you know, public statements, et cetera. And this, yeah. this reflects the mentality of his attorney general's department that he oversaw. And I just think that for him now, you know, months later, when over 900 British Columbians have been assaulted in the meantime, to come out and say, oh, now I'm going to suddenly fix this problem. I, well, I'm just very, very skeptical. Well, let's talk about sort of the substance of what he announced here yesterday. You heard him describe these, what he called repeat violent offender response teams working with probation officers, police officers on the street, Crown Council, to try and keep some of these repeat offenders locked up in jail and not released on bail. I mean, that's basically what you were asking for, was it not? A little bit. I mean, what, what, yes. I mean, look, don't get me wrong. I mean, this is something that is long overdue. My biggest frustration is the fact that he waited months and months and months, denied that there was anything he could do about it, uh, that his current attorney general said the same thing. There's just nothing we can do. It's all the federal government's problem. We were very clear. Mike DeYoung and our caucus actually six months ago gave them written direction on exactly how they could give direction to Crown Council to hold people in remand. Uh, instead of releasing them back into the public to commit more crimes, they held off, held off, held off until he became yeah. premier and he could make the announcement. So it looks like he's doing something. But understand that in that delayed period, that interregnum period, there were over 900 British Columbians in Vancouver alone that were attacked by violent offenders. And this is why so many people feel so frustrated that they're playing politics with public safety. Okay, so you're, you're saying you support, you're supporting what he's doing, but you're just saying you wish you had done it earlier. I wish he'd done it earlier, and I support some elements of it. I I think others are, frankly, look to me, honestly, like just some things that have been slapped together to pretend there's something new. Uh, When they talk about a seamless transition from the emergency department to detox beds in in St. Paul's, well, those are already there. I know that from my years on the Street to Home Foundation. We partially funded uh, those detox beds to try and create exactly what he's talking about here. Now, if they expand that and properly fund it, that's a good thing, but you know, honestly, this, there's not a huge amount of new here. Okay, let me ask you about one element of the, the violent repeat offenders program that he outlined, and, and that is that he said they must continue to work with the federal government. They have to work within federal law. They have to respect decisions of the Supreme Court of Canada, which is sort of repackaging what they had said before. Here is, here's David Eby speaking yesterday. Violent repeat offenders, how the, the role for the federal government here that has to step up as well. Here's what he had to say. I'll get your thoughts. We will work to the full extent within the federal law to make sure that violent offenders are not released uh, waiting for their trial, uh, to, uh, to make sure that, uh, that those violent offenders uh, are, are kept off the street. Uh, we are going to need to work with the federal government on their rules. Okay, so he's got to work with the feds on their rules. I mean, do you share that frustration that there's federal jurisdiction here as well, that the, feder- the federal government has to step up to try and fix this too? Mike, this is where it gets downright ridiculous. The current attorney general was actually a member of parliament for the NDP when Bill C-75, which brought in those changes to bail provisions, was actually being debated. He voted against it, not because it, it, it went far enough, but because he didn't think it was lenient enough. So the actual current attorney general didn't think that those provisions were lenient enough. And now David Eby expects us to believe, given his background with Pivot Legal, et cetera, that he actually wants them to toughen it up. Well, again, 
I have a huge amount of trouble, uh, trouble just thinking there's any credibility there whatsoever, given their past. Speaking to BC Liberal leader Kevin Falcon, we're talking about the announcements made by the new Premier David Eby yesterday, violent repeat offenders. You also touched on the crisis around uh, people who are mentally ill, addicted to dangerous drugs on the streets of Vancouver. Why are we continuing to basically warehouse people in, in tent cities on the downtown east side? Why can we not get more people into addictions treatment and recovery? He talked about that yesterday. You briefly touched on it there. Let me play a clip here for you. Again, here of David Eby, the new premier, talking about how he wants to move people into treatment and recovery from drug addiction. Have a listen. A new model of addictions care. One that moves people seamlessly from crisis response in our emergency rooms and our streets to detox, to treatment and supportive housing. Okay, uh, that sounds great, but I've also talked to a lot of police officers and other people who are on the streets on the front line of this crisis saying there are no detox beds. There, there are no places to, to get people into treatment and care, or they're in very short supply. Your thoughts? That is exactly correct. And, and please understand that this is the same David Eby that has been responsible for buying up motels and hotels and warehousing people with severe mental illness and addictions into those places without proper supports, even though they promised the communities there would be. And this has created chaos in communities all across the province. It's why places like Penticton fought tooth and nail to try and stop him, but he bulldozed right over them anyhow and said, you're going to take it or we're going to buy a bunch of tents and set people up in your park. I mean, this is the attitude that we've been facing for the last five and a half years. And now he's talking about, oh, wonderful, he wants to get people into treatment. Well, of course I would support that. But yeah. there are nowhere near the kind of detox beds and treatment facilities available. Right. Let me ask you uh, one more question here on EB's. You've talked a lot about reopening a large institution like Riverview to f- help people who are, have untreated mental illness on the streets, causing a lot of these problems. EB was asked yesterday about involuntary treatment. People who are mentally ill, they're addicted to drugs, in many cases both. Can you get them into involuntary treatment if they don't want to go into treatment? Here's what he had to say, then I'll get your thoughts. It won't be the decision of the provincial government that somebody is involuntarily held. It'll be a decision of a medical professional. But the decision of the province that will be made is that we'll make the resources available for that treatment so the physicians can make the decisions and they don't have to worry, do we have a bed available? What kind of a bed is it? Is it decent? Uh, And then perhaps release someone that they shouldn't uh, because they feel they don't have the resources that they need. Okay, so he says they're going to make the resources available. Your thoughts? Well, I don't know what that means. And, and, and you know, Mike, I'm sorry. I, I just sound skeptical, obviously, because I've watched them make all kinds of promises in all kinds of areas that, frankly, have not seen the kind of results that the public would expect. So, look, I've been very clear that I think there are folks out there with severe mental health issues. We as a society have failed them. I think we have to acknowledge that. I think we have a duty and responsibility to remove those folks from the streets, provide them 24, real 24-7 care with proper psychiatric and medical supports. And anything short of that is, is continuing to, uh, to fail those individuals, and, and uh, it's something we have to move on quickly. Um, he, that word salad that he just talked about to me sounds like nothing's going to be different six months from now, a year from now, or two years from now. Okay, we'll see. Thank you for your time today. Thanks very much for having me, Mike. All right, welcome back. We've talked a lot on the show about the stresses and strains on the BC healthcare system, the shortage of doctors and nurses, the waiting lists for surgeries, 
hospital emergency rooms that in some cases have been shut down or overflowing with long waits to see a doctor. That's especially the case at BC Children's Hospital, where people there have been waiting 10 hours or more in the emergency room to see a doctor for a sick child. That particular hospital under strain right now, especially with the surge in sick kids from respiratory illnesses, and now it's impacting the hospital's ability to deliver critical surgeries for very, very young patients, and that's upsetting for their parents, including my next guests, Chelsea Lee on the line. Chelsea is a Victoria mom, and her six-month-old son, Nash, is waiting for heart surgery at BC Children's. Chelsea, thank you for coming on. Hi, Mike. Thank you for having us. You bet, Chelsea. Also on the line is Chelsea's husband, Rob Veenhoff. Hi, Rob. Thank you for coming on. Uh, hi, Mike. Yeah, thanks again for having us, too. We're uh, happy to share our story with everybody. Well, I appreciate you doing that for sure. And my heart goes out to you and little little Nash. He was just, Chelsea, tell me about your son, Nash. How old is he? Um, Nash just turned six months old a couple days ago. Six months old. A couple of days. Okay. Happy, happy six-month birthday to Nash. Mm-hmm. So let, let's talk a little bit about, tell me about his heart, his heart condition. Yeah, so um, Nash has a condition uh, called Tetralogy of Fallot. Um, and basically what it is is there's uh, four things uh, with his heart that need to be kind of fixed up. Uh, one of them is a hole in his septum um, that is causing the blood to be mixed, so the oxygenated blood and the deoxygenated blood. Um, with that as well, there's what they call an aorta override, um, which is basically the aorta is positioned um, into both of the bottom chambers. Um, which is where the kind of hole and and the aorta override is what's kind of causing the mixture. Um, He'll also get a pulmonary valve replacement, uh, and also his pulmonary arteries uh, are um, narrow, and so those will be widened for him so he can get more blood flow through. Okay, boy, that's got to be very worrisome for for parents for sure. And Chelsea, let me go to you. Now, now the good news here, this this can be corrected through this surgery, right? Yeah, that's correct. So um, Nash must have this surgery, um, and the optimal time to have the surgery uh, for him is between six to eight or nine months, um, which is what we've been told by our cardiologist here at VGH in Victoria. So this is like the optimal time right now to actually um, have this uh, surgery performed on him. Right. So, yeah, the time is now. So so tell me what happened last week, because the, the surgery was scheduled for BC Children's Hospital, right? Yeah, that's correct. So my husband and I and Nash went over to uh, Vancouver uh, on the Sunday, November 13th. Uh, we were staying at the Ronald McDonald House there, which is absolutely amazing. And uh, we had our orientation for the surgery scheduled on the Tuesday. We got a call on the Monday night um, from our uh, cardiologist doctor here in Victoria at VGH. And he let us know that... Unfortunately, we are not going to be going in for surgery on Wednesday, November 16th for Nash, um, which was clearly like really upsetting. Um, And the reason he um, had shared with us was that um, the resources during the recovery phase of this whole process weren't available. So, you know, having staff to the beds um, in ICU weren't available at this time. And because of what um, is happening right now, 
at the uh, BC Children's Hospital um, with the crisis going on over there, there is such a strain for resources. Um, And so unfortunately, because of that, we are not able to have his surgery performed right now. Oh, dear. I'm very sorry to hear that. I know that must be so difficult for for you guys as parents. Rob, um, what went through your mind when you heard that bad news there? Yeah, obviously, we kind of think of, you know, how long can we delay the surgery without um, kind of having any of the long lasting impacts on him. Um, And also for all the other families that are in the same situation with us, you know, and we've recently, well, at the time, too, we were told, like, for the last two weeks, kind of these, you know, emergency slash non-emergency surgeries were all being cancelled. And so it kind of goes through... Uh, your mind about all the other parents and families that are in similar situations with with various needs and surgeries. And, you know, we're totally understanding that there are serious emergencies that happen and those children need their surgeries right away. And, you know, we're not taking away the fact that those need to happen. Um, We would just would like to see more support so that, you know, all the doctors and nurses and staff that are working in these hospitals um, aren't as strained and aren't as burnt out and that there are resources available so that every family can get the surgeries and the support that they need. Um, and, you know, one thing we really want to make sure is that the nurses and doctors and all of the staff that we have been involved with us from the day one with NASH have been nothing but amazing. Yeah, right. I mean, this this is what we often hear about our system, that once you get to the front of the line and you're receiving the care, the care is fantastic. It's the best in the world. Mm-hmm. Spe- speaking to Chelsea Lee and Rob Veenhoff, Victoria parents, about their six-month-old son, Nash, his heart surgery canceled last week at BC Children's Hospital. So, like, Chelsea, it sounds like from your explanation there, like, they didn't have... It was like a staff shortage. Like, how long would Nash have been in the hospital recovering after the surgery? How long would he have to stay there? Yeah, that's a, a good question. Um, he would have been staying in the hospital there for, um, well, depending, but we were told anywhere from like four to five nights he would be okay. in the hospital. Um, and then um, a couple nights there he would be in ICU um, for sure. And yeah. So, um, and, and we, like, like Robbie said, we, we understand, you know, like even if they have equipment over there, even if they have beds, they need people to support those beds and offer the services of from the hospital, right? So even if they have the equipment, they need humans behind it in order to perform um, the services that we need. And I think that's like a really crucial part of our story is that everything was re- already set to go, but that last phase of recovery was something that was not available, which is so crucial and critical to his whole um, process here of getting his heart right. fixed. Right, and, so, and, yeah, and was, I mean, it was... yeah. And was that because of a staff shortage? Is that what they explained we, to you? Yeah. We were told um, that it was because um, there was a lack of um, resources um, in recovery in ICU. And partially that is because of RSV, because the um, they're getting inundated at uh, BC Children's Hospital um, with so many uh, patients coming in this time of year right now. And so, unfortunately, there wasn't enough space and staff for yeah. Nash to have his uh, spot in the ICU. Boy, that's really that's really too bad. RSV, of course, is that respiratory illness that a lot of mm-hmm. kids are, are catching right now. So, Rob, what happens now? Like, have, have they told you when Nash will 
get his surgery? Like you mentioned, there's a there's a small window there to get this done. Yeah, so we were told um, by their uh, surgery scheduler that they would like to have it done uh, hopefully before Christmas. Um, so basically what we're doing now is we're just waiting for a phone call. Um, we're not sure if that phone call is going to say, you know, the surgery is going to be in two weeks or a month or two months, or whether that phone call is going to say, you know, can you be here in two days? So we're just kind of waiting for that and preparing for each of those scenarios. Um, and hopefully it comes sooner than later. Yeah, I sure hope that phone rings for you very soon. And, and Chelsea, I understand, like, you guys are now isolating too. You guys don't want to get sick, you know, before Nash has his surgery, right? So you're, you're isolating your family, is that correct? Yeah, well, basically we're keeping a pretty low profile. We're, um, yeah. um, I mean, Nash, um, we have to keep him as healthy as possible. Um, and then, of course, we also have a four-year-old, our daughter Summer, who is at home with us as well. So we have to make sure she's not getting sick, so she's home from daycare. My husband's home from work. I'm on maternity leave, so it's pretty cozy in our house right now, the four of us. Um, <laughs> and we're all trying to, you know, get by, like, day by day here. Um, I mean, we're lucky we have lots of family and friends support where yeah. we are, so we're grateful for that. Yeah, I'm. you know, I'm really impressed uh, how patient you've been with this, facing the situation that you had. But I got to imagine when you got that phone call, Chelsea, and you learned that Nash's surgery had been canceled on such short notice, what what was... Like, what went through your mind? I mean, that's a pretty upsetting thing to go through, right? Yeah, it, um, like I told Mary, my heart sank. I, I, um, you know, it actually took my breath away, to be honest, because I thought, yeah. oh, no, like, we've been waiting. Like, when Nash was born, he was three weeks old when we found out he had this heart condition, and then we had to wait a couple months to get the surgery date. And so we've gone through six months of waiting and trying to be patient. And I think when we got that call, um, it, it was... <laughs> Yeah, it was pretty heart-wrenching. Um, yeah. And th- the part that's even harder is the unknown. The uncertainty is the layer that, you know, um, covers all of this, which is really anxiety-provoking. Um, and, like, you know, just trying to do your best as a parent. And like I said, like, we know that there's other parents out there going through the same thing. And so, like, yeah. we just want to say, like, we're we're in this together. And there's got to be some sort of, like, change and action happening to this because it's just not sustainable. I want to thank you both for sharing your story today. And I I think I speak for all the listeners that I hope your phone rings here as soon as possible and Nash gets the surgery that he needs here as quickly as as possible. And I I want to wish you both luck and wish Nash luck and your whole family. And Chelsea and Rob, thanks a lot for coming on today. Thank you so much for letting us share our story. You bet. Thank you. You're very welcome, Mike. Thank you. All right. Yeah, breaking news all over the place here, as you just heard on your news there. Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum, the former mayor of Surrey, Doug McCallum, has been found not guilty, not guilty of public mischief there in his high-profile trial. I knew it. I knew it. You remember when I I predicted that a couple of weeks ago? I knew he'd beat the rap. When you're just taking a look at some of that evidence there in the video surveillance... You know, I just thought this, they haven't they haven't done it, man. They haven't gone far enough here to get them. So I, I'm not surprised. I, you know, you've got to prove these things beyond a reasonable doubt. And when I saw some of the video evidence, and I listened especially to some of the defense testimony in the trial, I just had a feeling that they hadn't passed that bar. So yeah, Doug McCallum, the former mayor of Surrey, not guilty on that mischief charge. Okay, other breaking news at this hour. 
David Eby here. Just in the last half hour, BC's new premier has announced new housing measures. They include the power for the provincial government to set municipal housing targets. Wants to get more homes built and on the market. Municipalities too slow in these housing starts. The province would get the power to start setting these municipal housing targets. They want to do it in cooperation with municipalities, but it looks like they're prepared to go further than that if they don't get what they want. Very interesting. And if you live in a condo, get set for new restrictions on condo rentals and age restrictions in condos as well. Lots to talk about with my guest, Paul Sullivan. Paul is a principal in Ryan, a global tax service and a tax service provider. He also keeps a very sharp eye on the BC housing situation. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Paul. Good morning. Thanks a lot for coming on. Paul, let's start first with the provincial government here. David Eby announcing this just a few minutes ago, that the province would have authority here to help set housing targets for municipalities. Here's David Eby speaking a short time ago, then I'll get your thoughts. The second bill sets out a framework for how the province is going to work with cities to respond to this massive spike in our population. Uh, this framework uh, sets out a mutually agreed target to hit in terms of the kind of housing that municipalities already know they need because of housing needs studies that we've supported them to do. Okay, so the province here now is starting to put, it sounds like some pressure on municipalities to set these housing targets, get more stuff built and on the market. Paul, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, we've been hearing this conversation for a little while now. Um, you know, I, I think one positive turn of events I heard this morning is that the province will uh, help fund infrastructure, parks, schools, hospitals, amenities for transportation for, for, for municipalities that are providing these, these homes. Um, but, you know, we got to see them built. And I guess one of the things that troubles me most is uh, most municipalities uh, participated in the UBCM study this year that they say says we are providing homes keeping up with population growth. So I, I feel like municipalities are in denial and it's nice that we have a carrot on the table, but what's the stick going to be? Yeah, that's a really good point. And I'm just taking a look at the fine print here of, of what's been brought forward here by David Eby here in the last half hour, because the same thought occurred to me was like, okay, he's saying we're going to work with municipalities here to set these housing targets. Well, what if they don't set the housing targets or what if they don't meet the housing targets? And it says in here, there would be compliance options that could be used as a last resort. I'm not sure precisely what that means, but it sounds like maybe the province would have some kind of hammer they could bring down on a municipality if they don't get enough housing built, right? Is that the way you read it? Well, that's what it seems to suggest, and, you know, yeah. the levels and the details on these things. And, uh, you know, I, again, I, I think municipalities uh, are not looking at the demographics of our existing society we have so many young people living at home with their parents we have massive immigration coming in and and, and there's this sense of denial that getting housing to the market is the problem and, and it truly is it, i mean we have the lowest vacancy on rental we have the lowest supply of new homes it, it, nothing's working in terms of crushing demand so let's get the supply going yeah, you know, sometimes when you speak to local municipal mayors and councillors, they kind of, like you said, is a bit of denial. Like, they they deny that there's any problems, or they'll say, no, we're building lots of housing in our communities. But in your experience, 
do are a lot of I know it varies from municipality to municipality, right? Some are very seem to be really good at getting housing built, and others there's a ton of red tape and very costly delays. Yeah, and that's right. And the, and the larger projects, the ones providing the most density, are the ones that are up against five to seven year approval processes. And now we're also burdened with the supply chain problem, labor problem, high cost of development. We can't build rental anymore because it's taken so long to get to this point to realize that that's what we need to do. Uh, that it's become non-viable. So, you know, I, I don't think that um, Premier Eby's idea of changing rental restrictions on condo projects is going to work. It's just not enough homes. Um, and, mm. you know, I, I don't think there's any security in that. We need to talk about permanent rental. We need to talk about purpose-built rental. Converting a strata unit to, to allow rental, that owner can sell. They can come back. There's no permanency of that. It's not good rental product. Okay, let's talk a little bit about that, because that's the other big piece of this announcement here a short time ago. Changes to uh, the BC strata laws that would outlaw rental restrictions. So some stratas, some condo buildings, you're not allowed to rent out your unit. You're not allowed to rent out your condo. That would change under this law. Here is EB speaking a short time ago. Responding to the housing crisis means making sure that housing units that are available to be rented are actually rented and provide housing to British Columbians. The first bill that was introduced in the legislature will end those rental restrictions in about 300,000 units across the province. Okay, so it sounds like, I guess there's 300,000 condo units in BC that you're not allowed to rent out. Right under yeah, the strata have, bylaws. Yeah, go ahead, Paul. With, yeah, sorry. With with various age restrictions uh, as are you know causing these these inabilities, but you know it's not. There's he's also suggested there's as many as twenty nine hundred units total that are sitting vacant, which. I, I don't know. I kind of have my doubts. I mean, we already have the spec tax for people that aren't renting their units, so it's not a preferable thing to do. Um, but even if it's 2,000, that, that's really not very many units in light of the housing shortage we have right now. Yeah, I started wondering if this was a solution looking for a problem because a, a lot of these, I, I don't think there's much vacancy here in the condos that we have in, in the province. Here's another one on age restrictions. Now, this is very interesting the rental, the government moving to outlaw some of these age restrictions. Now, this will still allow, like, retirement communities that are promoted as 55 and over in Estrada. That would still be allowed. But the government saying some of these buildings have 19-plus only age restrictions. Like, basically, you can't have any kids in there. And the government saying that that's not, they're not going to allow that anymore. What do you think of that? Uh, I mean, I, I, for one, I don't think those units are probably designed for families, so uh, it probably doesn't matter. Um, but, you know, it's also going to make it difficult where you have strata councils that are not accustomed to dealing with problem renters. And you could put a lot of owners in very difficult situations. We've seen a lot of lawsuits in, in our town around problem renters, and, and you're, you're now going to inject that into their ownership. And it's, it's, uh, I think it's going to present quite a lot of risk. Let's listen to EB speaking a short time ago. He explains here how these... These rental restrictions won't affect 55-plus or older or short-term rentals. Let's have a listen to what he had to say here. These changes will have no effect on seniors-only housing. That 55-plus restriction 
will continue in seniors' housing. The second is strata rules around short-term rentals or Airbnb rentals. Stratas will still be able to restrict short-term rentals in their buildings. Okay, so you'll still be allowed to have a 55 and older rule in a strata, but any sort of rules restricting kids under that age would not be not be allowed. And I guess he's saying that, you know, families with young children needed an opportunity to move into these homes that they're blocked from going into now. Do you think that's a big problem right now? Well, again, I don't think these these homes are designed for families. But, uh, you know, if there's a single parent with a child and there's a there's a available condo unit there. I, great. I, I do think we need to make that available. But I don't think it's the long term solution. I don't think that you have any tenure in this type of housing. Again, you can sell the, the owner can sell it. The owner can move in themselves. This is not a stable form of rental housing for society. All right, we're talking about David Eby's big housing announcement here, including some new new rules for stratas and condos. Paul Sullivan is my guest. Lots of calls. Ron in New West. Hi, Ron. Go ahead. Yeah, hello, Mike. I, I think this is a really poorly thought out and actually idiotic uh, change to our um, our Strata Property Act. For example, I live in a 63-unit condo. We have six dedicated rental units. We also allow people to rent it through hardship or to an immediate relative. Every strata has a similar thing, different levels of rentals, some with none, some with some. The thing is, Mm. this is not going to change any unit's availability. The rentals are full. The owned condos are full. There's no vacancies in our building. There's no vacancies in most buildings. So, But you know what it will do? If I can buy a condo anywhere in B.C. and I'm allowed to rent it out, nobody can put restrictions on me. We're going to have investment companies and real estate companies buying up multiple units in buildings uh, because they can rent them out. And what happens there, every unit they own in the building entitles them to a vote. And I have a 23-unit building. It's one of my customers. There's a corporation there that owns 10 units. Guess what happens when they're trying to vote uh, funds for major repairs? This investment firm votes them down because they don't want to spend the money. Okay, that, I think you raised some really, really interesting points. And Paul Sullivan, thanks for the call. Paul Sullivan, it also occurred to me, like, if you say now that every condo is available to rent out, does that not make that condo more more valuable or potentially drive the price up? Because now it's now it's attractive as an investment, an investment property for someone who wants to buy it just to rent it out, right? Am I wrong? Well, no, I, I think that's a possibility. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, a, a good part of our rental inventory in the lower mainland are investors. And, you know, they buy those units and they rent them out. And suddenly they became taboo. You're not allowed to have more than one home. But a, a good portion of the newly built condo projects are going into the rental pool. And, and I think the caller yeah. is right. You, you could see invest, investors dabbling in the used market as well. And, and and with the rents, the way they're going, and the fact we're not building these mm. rental towers, yeah, might be correct there. Let's go to Josh on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Josh. Go ahead. Hey, totally disagree with your first caller. Now, I'm not an NDP fan, but I think they absolutely hit the nail on the head with it. It's a great idea. Uh, I think it might heat the condo market up a little bit, but I don't think it's. I don't think it's gonna. I don't think it's gonna kill it. And like it's it's really going to open up a lot of different availability. Like some of the buildings I've seen before, I was actually looking into it. And, you know, there were some like really ugly $250,000 condos in Abbotsford 
uh, and you weren't allowed to rent those out. So, you know, the thing is, a lot of the buildings you could rent out are these super expensive condos. So I think this is going to open up some of the cheaper places, which will bring in some cheaper rents as well. Even if an investor owns it, big deal. People need housing right now. That's a problem. It's not investors is a problem right now. Okay, Josh, thank you for a good call. I'm glad we got the other side of it there, too. Appreciate it. Natalie in Poco. Hi, Natalie. What do you think? Hi. Um, I, I agree more with your first caller, but I also um, tell me, Paul, if you agree with this, that um, with stability and needs, this legislation, this legislation addresses neither and affordability. It doesn't address anything, really. Because, and the one I think... Um, you know, if we built more co-op housing, um, yeah. if we could address needs, but ensure that we're building housing, that it's transitionary. Like, so say a family moves in, well, then once the adult children move out, there should be units available for to, for the um, for the uh, tenants to move into, uh, um, a, you know, a one-bedroom condo. So it makes, right. so it frees up that three-bedroom unit it should be required i know it doesn't sound fair but if it, it's it's uh, to me it just makes sense to make that okay. available right thank you thank you natalie thank you natalie for the call uh we got to leave it there we have more calls coming in but we're up against the clock paul sullivan thanks for coming on with your thoughts and analysis on it today hey pleasure to be involved thank you